Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. Ethan Elstrat took on the task, the mission, the goal of um, working with musicians in the city who at a point not too long ago, and I forget how many years, were not, were being challenged in their use of public space and streets to perform as they have for centuries. And um, that has led him to a more sustained role of working on behalf of musicians' rights in continuing to work in public space, but also um, to deal with other issues that uh, impact their uh, ability to perform and also to make a living from what they do. Um, so I'm uh, thankful to um, Ethan for what he's doing and um, I am uh, wanting to know more about it. So I, I'm sure that you all do too. So I'm gonna let uh, Ethan's kind of introduce you know, how did this all start? I, I kind of summarized it, but give me a, a little bit better story on it, narrative on it. And then, um, you know, how you've been working since then and um, how the future is looking for what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. So Jean, thank you for having me back. It's, it's been a while and this is a good timing because we are just uh, just past our eighth, uh, eighth birthday. So we've been doing this since, since 2012. Um, and then the real quick version of the story is when there was a crackdown on music venues and, and permitting in, in 2012 uh, in the run up to the Super Bowl, then was there was a you know a large public outcry and large public meetings about that because of, you know people went from having five gigs a week to zero, right? And businesses that had music for a long time suddenly weren't able to do it. Um, and so because it of that so it, it was so weird. What what actually uh, let me interrupt you for just one sure. second. What what promoted what provoked that? I think it was, you know, it was, I believe in the Lander administration was, was fairly new. Um, or at least there was, a, there was something that had happened right in that process. The start of the second term when they decided to, to tighten up, I think permitting processes, but with, but instead of allowing people to, be, to sort of come in compliance, they just looked and anybody who they didn't feel was in compliance got pulled and had to shut down having their shows. And so instead of working with people to say, all right, let's get this, you know, where it needs to be, it was, you got to stop. And of course, if you're a musician working, you know, gig to gig, or if you're a, a venue that relies on having live performance nightly, to cut that off like a switch is p devastating. And yeah. and so because of that outcry, that issue got addressed fairly quickly. Within a, a month or two, everybody was back up and running. But it also became clear that there were a lot of other issues needed to be addressed. And so a group of, of individuals just kept meeting you know, for a long time, weekly, every Wednesday at noon. And, you know, for a year we were doing that. And ultimately it's clear that as things move forward, it's really difficult to get people to meet weekly as volunteers in perpetuity. And so we ultimately became an actual nonprofit uh, about five years ago and have been really working in that space of organizing and advocacy around a lot of it really specifically around issues of sort of public policy 
in culture and then social justice issues as well, because they're also interrelated. Um, which, which is really a lot of the work now that we've been doing in sort of this COVID era is, is that intersection is, is so um, apparent and important at this point um, because New Orleans was hit so hard so early, um, you know, culture and, and the city shut down, but because people's livelihoods and, and situations were often very tenuous because of the historic disinvestment in communities of color and within the cultural community writ large, people didn't have the, ability to sustain, um, you know, essentially, you know, pay things like paying rent, right? Um, unemployment is, was not able to cover uh, expenses for those that were able to even access unemployment. And, you know, what we're really working with now is trying to get the city of New Orleans to adopt um, some better support structures and some better policy to, to support venues and musicians and, you know, what does culture look like in New Orleans when it's not necessarily safe to have large groups inside? What does that mean for music here? And so really pushing the city to to draft a plan. You know, we're, we're eight months in. It's my contention the city should have had a plan certainly several months ago to get to this point. They don't yet have a coherent plan, I think. And so we need to get to that point as quickly as possible to get um, some structure in this stuff. Because you see music... Uh, and musicians and, and businesses figuring out a way to do something. Um, and, you know, musicians want to work, but they want to be safe. Venues want to reopen, but they want to be safe. I think, you know, of all businesses, I've really seen, the, you know, particularly cultural businesses really being careful about what is safe to present. But we need to be able to support them to do things that are safe, but also create some sort of level of, of income. And that's largely focusing on a lot of outdoor spaces but also how do we make sure that these spaces and policies are done equitably? Because we know that the businesses that have the most resources to invest in outdoor spaces um, are generally, you know, businesses that are run uh, often from folks that have the means, right? It's often wider than the general population of New Orleans. And so how do we make sure that we're creating spaces and policies and opportunities for the locally black owned neighborhood businesses, venues and bars as much as we are for the large conglomerate owned um, sort of corporate spaces who may otherwise have access. And, and let me just say here that um, just to kind of get on my soapbox for a minute, um, I, I've, I've, uh, I think we've talked about this a little bit, but um, I think we've totally under sourced and appreciated um, our public uh, and green spaces throughout the city in all the neighborhoods which it seems to me can be used for smaller events with sm small um, uh, music groups and with um, vendors who are um, come from businesses in the community surrounding those small spaces. So a kind of network of neighborhood, outdoor green spaces in the city, which would also attract and, and welcome visitors at a time when we still cannot pack restaurants and bars with people. Um, so even, and, and quite frankly, even when we are able to put people into uh, all those spaces, why not have something that is more oriented towards getting folks out into the, um, uh, into the green spaces of the city and, and emphasize that as a, a, a combination marketing um, strategy for getting people back into the city um, and, and welcoming visitors. So I, I think there's an opportunity there to tell a, 
to add a leg to our marketing story, which is basically right now, you know, our music, our food, uh, increasingly our architecture, not as much as it should be about our visual arts scene, which is powerful and growing and not being also, it's not getting exposure, it should. But the green New Orleans, which is why many of us live here, this is a, this, you know, you, you're looking out your window, I always say as palm trees instead of the building across this way from you, um, is, is not, that story is not told. So I, I, I like the, what you're saying and I'm saying, you know, this is something I'm focused on and I want to try to help with. So we no, absolutely. And you look at the history of New Orleans culture is very much about culture reclaiming public space. And I mean, it, it fits extremely well with what New Orleans has done, what New Orleans does. And, and certainly, you know, we've done a lot of work around street performers and busking who have, who have been out there and continue to be out there. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a safer place to, to see music right now. And certainly we don't need big crowds to gather, but there's a way to be out and presenting these things safely. You see the porch concerts, you see, you know, bands popping up on the bayou and you see, um, you know, businesses having now music on their balconies and, and things like that. So people are trying to figure out a way we just need to be able to support them and be able to get them through what looks like it's going to be at least, you know, you know, at least another year of, 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 yeah, more of, of yeah. having to adapt to this. And so we need to make sure that we are doing it, we're doing it equitably and we're doing it in ways that, that really support the ingenuity of New Orleans, you know, musicians, artists and, and traditional culture bearers because that's what, it, what it's about. They, they can lead the way, we just need to be able to support them to do it and make sure that it's safe and that they can get the economic benefit from it. Let me go on and ask you what, I know that you have been involved in trying to aim support at musicians through the COVID opportunities. So tell me more about that and, and what else you're doing in that direction. Yeah, absolutely. We did, I mean, we did our, our first round of micro grants, um, which we gave $250 to um, somewhere around 300 uh, musicians and other members of the culture community. Right. It looks like we're gearing up to hopefully launch another round of those because we know that the needs of the, you know, are ongoing and, and it's not, just because things are starting to open up doesn't mean that the economic opportunity that was there is back. So people are gonna need assistance for for certainly some time moving forward. Um, we've been doing that. We've been also through our website, really trying to um, give people other venues of support, whether that be financial support or, you know, figuring out where the community fridges are or mental health support and just create sort of a an updated list and a curated list of opportunities and then making sure that we check it every couple of weeks to make sure that opportunities are current because we definitely don't want people to log in, click on something and find out that, the, you know, all five grand opportunities have expired, which happens a lot. People have, you know, people have sort of stopped updating. So we're trying to do that. And then our last thing now is really around the policy. You know, we've really been pushing and having conversations with the city and bringing, you know, musicians and other folks in direct conversation with members of the health department and, you know, economic development department to say like, this is one, this is a crisis and you need to move forward and you need to, you need to treat it as if it is a crisis. Um, and there's a level of urgency here that needs to be, um, and it needs to be addressed. And two, what, what is working, what are the needs are and how can the city can work together with the culture community to create um, some of these opportunities we were just talking about. And I think there is some progress there around outdoor space and, and parklets and, and that, but it, it can't be a theoretical conversation. It has to be a conversation that leads to action and in, to leads to quick action. We're out of time to think about, you know, great, you know, things that we can do six months from now. We need things we can do six days from now. 
And so really getting the city and the you know, bureaucracy often moves slowly and we can't afford that to happen. So how do we make sure that, um, again, those voices are in the room, they're heard and they're, they're being acted on. And that's what we've been doing the past couple of weeks and, and will continue to do, I think, certainly throughout the rest of this year until there's a solid commitment and we see movement on the ground and we see the support we need to see. What's your take on the, the kind of rich um, mine of, of cultural culture, of cultural um, production and people and um, respect for culture in this city. And yet um, the inadequacy of resources to really uh, sustain and grow um, our culture. How are you looking at that uh, gap, that disparity? Yeah, I mean, I think it is, it's a, it's a big disparity. Everyone, everyone pay lip service to how much they love New Orleans culture. You know, every elected official, every tourism official, everybody. Um, but when it, when it comes down to supporting it is when, you know, the words don't always match the action. And, you know, I think a lot of that is, um, it's an equity issue, certainly. Um, but I, what also points to me is that people understand the power of New Orleans culture politically and understand the power of it and, and, the, and you know, some sense the brand of it, um, but they need to be pushed to action. But it also means to me that um, if you can raise that issue enough, it's also uh, a real way to leverage support if we can do it correctly, because culture does have um, a real sort of voice, if used correctly, that can really push change. And I think that's also a lot of people in power know that. And so uh, try to use it to their advantage or make sure it doesn't get used. So I think we need to leverage that more to make sure that we have policies that really support the culture community um, directly. And we need some reform within structures that were set up to often, you know, the tourism is a state entity that's often, I think, set up to extract what is, you know, um, the money and power of the, of the culture fine. community. And we need to make sure that, that that the one thing that hopefully COVID can do is make sure that we actively change that now um, because we see what the importance of it is and we need to see how it's supported. And, you know, I think people sometimes take it for granted that culture will, will always be here, but that that's not necessarily the case. If the people that create the culture can't be here, then the culture can't be here. Um, so we need to change that. Yeah. What have you learned? What has, has, what has the COVID crisis revealed to you? Um, I mean, I think that the depth of the inequity and economic disparities, I think, has really become prevalent. Um, I think, unfortunately, one thing um, that's sort of borne out is that for a long time, a lot of members of the culture community, be they musicians or traditional culture bearers, weren't in decision-making roles on how to address COVID early on. Instead, it was sort of the usual tourism officials, et cetera, which has been a has made recovery more difficult for the smaller venues, for the neighborhood spots, for the local spots, because they weren't necessarily on the forefront of, of people's minds when they, when they needed to be and should have been. And if one thing can come out of this, I hope that people understand the importance of having people that are on the ground in leadership positions to direct resources and support where it needs to be. Because, you know, if, if, if you are running, you know, a massive sort of um, hotel conglomerate you don't have the same needs as someone who's running, you know, a bar or venue that has 200 people in, an, you know, that has a largely neighborhood clientele. Uh, and so we need the people that are running those small spots to be able to say that 
you know, if you value us, you need to have us at the table, right? Um, and at the table all the time, not just when you feel like you need it. So, you know, that leads me to um, a question about uh, that's that's always uh, an, an undercurrent kind of question that um, is controversial in part, but also just, uh, um, I guess, again, uh, it, it's evolving and we need to understand how it evolves. The definition of a culture bearer. Right. Um, how, do you, how do you address that? Yeah, I mean, I think your your, your constituency are the culture bearers. That's who you're serving. Yeah, and I, I think the definition of culture bearer is one. I don't, I don't know that it's it's for me to define necessarily. But I think what happens is that you see that people using the definition of culture bearer for whatever they want it to be, for whatever sort of suits their purposes in the moment. Um, you know, you can't have everyone be a culture bearer because then nobody is a culture bearer, right? Um, and I think you see oftentimes language of people saying, well, you know, if you are, you know, um, in the service industry, well, you're kind of a culture bearer. And I would say, no, that's not correct. I think um, you have to, sort of, I think you have to say what you mean. Often, um, you know, and, and we've started to stay away from, shy away from just using the term culture bearer at Macno, and we'll use things now like traditional culture bearer and looking at the real sort of roots culture, the black neighborhood culture of New Orleans, right? The, the masking community, um, skull and bones, baby dolls, you know, brass bands, really sort of traditional black culture in New Orleans is, is often what I think people are, are saying when they say culture bearer. But I think you've also seen um, politically a move to try to expand that because it makes it more expedient because you can say you're supporting culture bearers, but you're actually supporting the film industry. And that is not the same thing. It's not analogous. And we can't, we can't do that. It's unfair. There's equity issues um, that need to be addressed, right? The the city of New Orleans is is built on black culture and is often built on black traditional culture. And we need to say that and we need to support that. And if that's who if that's the community we say we're supporting, then that's the community we need to say we're supporting. Going forward, um, you've you've expressed you know how you've been relating to the COVID um, crisis and, and uh, you've expressed uh, your um, uh, assumption that I think most people agree with that this is going to be a longer term situation than we originally thought. And of course, there's tremendous uncertainty associated with it. And everybody has expressed that um, sense of uncertainty. But uh, going forward longer term, um, how do you view what MACNO's role will be in trying to advance the um, welfare of um, uh, the the people in the traditional roots culture of the city, as well as other music performers and producers and uh, cultural um, producers in general. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's twofold. One, we're gonna try to, as much as we can to continue the, the immediate direct support. Um, and then also guide people to other, other resources because we know there's never gonna be enough, right? There's you know, such tremendous need and this is ongoing. There's never gonna be enough financial support or other support, but we, hopefully we can help uh, alleviate some of the, the biggest need there. Um, and that's one piece of it, to make sure people get to the short term. The second piece then is to look at the, you know, the policy solutions and the changes that need to be made to allow people to operate within this space and to have as much of, of safe sort of activity, both cultural activity and economic activity as possible. And that's, you know, that's policy changes. And then what are those changes can then become long-term? So the example we talk about a lot is outdoor live entertainment and spaces. Uh, 
but there are some hiccups within the city regulation of that, that we've temporarily, temporarily allowed places to, to open up outdoor live entertainment spaces during, during the COVID restrictions because it's safer, but they're technically not legal in the city right now. So we need to create a pathway to legalize those outdoor spaces that people are investing a lot of money in um, to do that. Because right now, if the COVID restrictions went away, a lot of these new spaces would technically be illegal based on the old way of, of regulating outdoor live entertainment. So we need to look at what just temporary restrictions and how to make them long-term fixes. The other one that we've, we've talked about a fair amount is the fact that so many neighborhood bars and music venues are uh, non-conforming spaces, which means, you know, the short, long story short is that if they're closed or don't, you know, present music for six months, they could lose that ability. And I know that that is again suspended during sort of COVID emergency, but we need to look at what does that mean moving forward? Because there's a real danger of some of these smaller spots, say having to close down because of economic distress and COVID, nobody taking their place. And then if nobody takes their place, then some of these small bars or music venues would lose that non-conforming use, which means they would not be able to present um, live music or be a bar. They would have to revert to whatever the surrounding zoning is. Um, and it's, it's a little complicated, but you know the, the easiest way to think about it is if they don't reopen in, in a timely manner, they could then close permanently as a, as a bar or music venue for some of these spaces. So we need to correct, uh, create protections for those spaces as well, because you know some of the, the most beloved neighborhood spaces could be at risk of losing, not just the business, but in perpetuity, losing the ability to be that type of business again. So we I, need to assume, I assume uh, knowing uh, how your organization has worked effectively to make uh, to accomplish some changes, especially, for example, in in how um, uh, uh, music in the streets has been treated over time. Um, presumably, you've been talking with the city or uh, city council people and the administration about this issue. And so there's an awareness that they, this has to be um, there. There is. Addressed. There's an awareness. I don't think there's a there's a solution yet. I mean, the one thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that while we're sort of in this COVID emergency that is suspended, so it's not. Again, this is one of the things that's not, you know, thing we have to solve immediately, but it's something we have to solve um, in the long term. And it's it's the type of policy that can end up, if it's not resolved, end up um, without people thinking about it, end up really having a negative impact on music and culture in the city. It's the kind of you know, um, it's like a sleeper issue kind of that we need to get in front of because we can solve it and make it not an issue at all. And that's what we should be doing for some of these things is solving it so it's not an issue. You know, we've been very fortunate over this time to get some resources to be able to do our mini grant program and, and the Wellness Business Alliance has been very supportive of, of us and, and I'm definitely thankful for that. That's been, that's been fantastic. And we've been able to get some other donors to do that, you know, which is, which is great. But, you know, for us, to, to continue institutionally, we're looking at trying to find some sort of internal, some funding to fund our internal work because a lot of the work around policy change and planning is, is long, long, much longer term work. That is also what I would say is sort of the least sexy work about culture is trying to make a zoning change um, because, you know, it's not as um, forward facing. So we're, we're absolutely looking at that. We've also, we're in our eighth anniversary and our eighth anniversary fundraiser right now, which is different this year. We usually do sort of one big uh, party. We don't, we don't do galas, we do parties. So we had a sort of a, a yearly anniversary party. This year we've transitioned to do a digital sort of 
space. So we're doing what we call our MACNO duets, which are conversations that members of the MACNO team are facilitating with um, different musicians and members of the culture community in New Orleans. We've done two um, with Arsene DeLay and Joy Clark, and then um, uh, Jose Firming and uh, Bruce Sampai Barnes did one last week, and we've got two more scheduled with uh, DJ Soul Sister, Melissa Weber, uh, and Sleazy Easy next week, uh, and then with Chris Royal and George Porter Jr. Uh, the, the week following. And so those are just one hour conversations about, you know, music, culture, where we see things headed, you know, sort of wherever we want to take it. And we're hoping to sort of expand that, maybe do a monthly series like that. I try to bring two people together to have these conversations about issues that we work on and sort of a little bit different from a, a usual sort of artist interview, but really about culture and policy in the future. Now, these duets, um, they, uh, I assume that they've been recorded and they're available um, uh, online? They are, so we do them, uh, we start them on, on Facebook Live and they're at the High Hole Lounge, so they're at the High Hole Lounge's Facebook page, but then we put them on our YouTube page, they're all recorded so you can watch them anytime. So what, what's the, uh, how do you get to them on the YouTube? Uh, it's just Music and Culture Coalition New Orleans uh, on YouTube. And then we also link to them on our website, which is macno.com, M-A-C-C-N-O.com. There'll be direct links from the website uh, that you can just click on them and watch. And we're gonna have them in, in perpetuity on the website. So, um, we're, and again, hopefully if these, if these four go well, we can maybe even do like a monthly series where we bring in two different people that sort of, you know, the idea is that there's some sort of um, relation between the two folks and then we just have a conversation that, um, you know, can, can lead where it leads. Ethan? Thank you. I'm, happy. I'm glad you're here. I hope you never leave the city. <laughs> Except for a break on, you know, on occasion, you know, but um, uh, uh, keep at it. Keep on keeping on. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. And we'll talk again soon. I am here with Marilyn Gisette, who is legendary in the city for her, um, as, a, as a chef and as a, let's call it a culinary leader. Is that fair? Okay, I'll take that. <laughs> um, and we're we're going to be talking about um, cooking. We're going to be talking about the restaurant business. Um, I, I want to start um, from the beginning. You know, how did you happen to take this direction? That is really interesting because I was fifty-two years old when I took that direction. Oh my and, god! Um... It was a second or third <laughs> career. Wow. I, um, I, I was, and I, um, I can't even believe that you're over 50. Yeah, you're so gracious. I, um, yeah, I was at Tulane University coordinating a consortium grant uh, between Tulane, Suno, and UNO. And we were talking about the obesity in our city and the unhealthiness of our communities um, because of our great Southern fried foods and that we could do better and be more productive because then as an administrator, you know, folks are often sick and can't come to work. And that means that somebody's got to work harder, right? Um, so we talked about it during 2002. Um, and when I left the university in 2000, at the end of 2004, I started preparing meals uh, outside my home and contacting my, uh, my uh, professional friends who could afford to pay me a few dollars to feed them, right? And I used to send out menus and they would select for the week. And that's kind of how it got started. Then Katrina hit 
right? 2005. I started in January. Katrina hit 2000, August of 2005, um, the end of August, and um, displaced us all. I came back, and the African American Museum called me and said, hey, we need some help with food. Places are shut down. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. You know, I figure I had PTSD. But anyway, so that was the sort of the impetus for me coming back after being stunned by Katrina. So what and did you actually do for um, the African American Museum? Are you speaking about the, the McKenna or the one in the Treme? I'm talking, I'm talking Treme. Okay. I'm talking Treme. Uh, Tommy Myrick at the time was the director of the African American Museum. And mm -hmm. if you Tommy Myrick is a creative director. Uh, she is an act actress and she is the director of um of uh theater yep and she so yeah so she brought me in and then i did a lot of the outdoor markets you know after katrina the arts market the lakeview market kind of got my feet wet with serving pop you know large groups of people and then the city of new orleans uh offered a request for proposals and I responded about a year later to that. And I've been in a farmer's market since 2008. Which farmer's market at in French Toronto? Park, the French Quarter Farmer's Market at oh, um, North Peter Street. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I got to get to your um, to your place. I have not. I hate to admit it because I am I'm not a fancy foodie, but I like to eat. <laughs> and fancy. I think it's not fancy. Huh? It's not fancy. It's like yeah, eating fine dining on a budget. Well, um, quite frankly, <laughs> I get down there, Gene. Let me tell you something. I just finished um, some chicken livers from Mackenzie's. <laughs> I haven't eaten those in years. I used to I know love they were great. Them. They were great. And it's very, very eclectic. I like everything from fairly uh, esoteric uh, down to uh, extremely down-home food. So I like it there all. You there you it's go. The only thing I don't um, like, uh, there's certain foods that I, my system uh, tells me, hey, what are you doing to me? But um, uh -huh. generally speaking, I like it all. So, so how, um, all right, so bring me up to the present. So exactly how would you describe your business as it is now? Oh. Well, I don't stress out anymore because the French Quarter Farmers Market is um, a challenging place. We've outgrown our space. So um, while we were very optimistic about the summer pre-COVID, COVID changed that attitude. But we never closed. My son is my general manager. So he, what else he's going to do? He... You know, he's not married. He's got a, a, a son that is a teenager. So he went in every day. Um, we didn't have customers come to the counter, but we, we were already doing takeout. We, um, we were pretty advanced um, in the market because we had um, uh, on the counter a self-ordering kiosk and a kitchen display system tying all that in, which meant even pre-COVID, maybe the angels were telling us something because we had that, that kiosk on the counter, which meant that customers could just come up and place their order and it would come directly, go directly to our kitchen. 
And that was like expediting orders and it was an efficiency that we said, oh man, you know, we, we're gonna cut down on labor costs and then the staff that's already here can enjoy an increased labor once the system paid for itself and it was doing it rather quickly. So it served us still. So, so with COVID hitting, we didn't necessarily need that system, but we were poised because we were already partnering with all the delivery platformers like Uber Eats and Grubhub and DoorDash and Postmates. We were already um, partners with them months before, a year before COVID. So um, I remember days when we were making $43 a day uh, uh, at the first hit of COVID. And so now I would say our business seems to be uh, uh, improving. I'm saying, but it's so new and early, but I say we've been in a market at 20% of our, of our sales for each time period. You know, each month is different. So if we did an average, I would say averaged about 20 to 25% of our sales last year this time. Can you and do no do no gene that the other form the other tenants was not did not come back to the market until sometime in June or July. So, so we were, were out there from March through July alone. Huh. Yeah. So that's not easy because you didn't have a critical mass of of people to draw the crowds. So well, to speak. you couldn't draw a crowd because we were in no one was allowed to come. Well, I don't mean a crowd. I mean, you just couldn't, you couldn't attract a sufficient number of people to, to really make us, uh, some money because, you know, you need that critical mass of things to attract folks to come. Yeah, but I'm saying we were all required to stay indoors. Do you understand? We weren't allowed during phase one. I mean, we weren't in phase one. When COVID struck in March, Latoya, the mayor, shut it down. No one could come into the marketplace. We had to socially distance. So that's why nobody was there. I see. Um, so we, we had to rely on strictly uh, phone-in orders. But people were home hoarding, you know, shopping, over-shopping in the grocery stores. They had no need for restaurants. They didn't know. We were all, like, stunned, you know, trying to figure out what to do. That's why all the toilet paper left. You couldn't buy flour. You couldn't find breadcrumbs. You couldn't find sugar. I mean, all the shells were like, I was like, wait, what's going on when I didn't need it? But no, people were cooking at home as they're still doing, but they are getting out more now. But at the onset of that, yeah, they didn't have a need for anybody to cook for them. Hmm. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, how do you see things going forward while we're still in the COVID pandemic phase, let's not call it phase one, two, or three, but just crisis COVID phase, which is what we're in. Yeah. Uh, and, and how do you, and that's question one. And then question two is, how do you see coming out of that? How has your business or how will your business change? Okay. So let's take the first question coming out. We're in it and we're in it. And we don't know how long we're going to be in it. So businesses have, it's highly competitive, 
But I don't see it as a threat, the competition. I see it as a partnership, a network. Um, you've got to have a social media presence. You, you've got to be active every day. If you can, um, you know, you can't hire a publicist or a food photographer or a strategist as I cannot, I have to wear all these hats. And so the hats are media hats, um, tech hats, you figure it out, you learn it. I keep up with my webpage, your webpage must be active. You must follow your insights. You must, um, uh, uh, as I said, network with the community. You've got to keep them, uh, uh, at, you've got to be in the forefront of their mind. They have to become a friend. You, you have to become a friend to them, someone who's familial. And the way you do that, as I said, you have to have a presence. You have to keep them informed. Uh, keep your your social media uh, pages uh, lively, active, and diverse. I mean, you have you can't just do the routine stuff. You have to be creative with all of it. And I'm doing that now, I'm talking to you. So thank you for the invitation. Um, uh, Black Restaurant Week, I seek them out. You wanna go online and find out where are the opportunities to reach new consumers that are at home who need a helping hand now that kids are going back to school. Because now uh, I think uh, folks are now looking forward to having restaurants, engaging with restaurants again. They're able to come out for short periods, maximize that, offer loyalty. Remember that everybody needs to be uh, thanked in a way for uh, their business to you because they can eat anywhere. So I, I don't know if I'm saying too much or not even enough, but I'm just excited. I just know that you have to have a presence and you have to have authenticity and you have to have products that are reliable. If you do not have consistency with your product, doesn't matter what business you're in, you're out of the game. Your product has to be top notch. Your food has to be trusted, safe. The environment has to be safe. Um, all the visuals have to be there. That, that's how I see it right now. I'm just, it's ticker tape because I'm doing everything you're asking me. And what was the last part? <laughs> Um, how do you see uh, coming out of this? Let's say we got the vaccine, the vaccine's working, things calm down. Uh, it's not going to go away altogether. It's going to be like a bad flu virus that's going to be out there that's going to circulate, you know, in, in all likelihood. How do you see how you are shaping your business coming out of this? It kind of sounds like what you just said. You're going to continue to do. Um, I, I love what you said, you know, keeping the presence, having the authenticity, the consistency, um, and, and, and kind of having that, um, I can't read my last word here, imagination, is it? Well, that too. You have to, yeah, you have to, you have to be engaged and you have to be fresh, um, you know, if you can understand what that word means. You cannot so, so, take, you can't take, you have to, you have to reward your loyal, your loyal patrons. And you, you, you have to also engage other restaurateurs, other like businesses, um, and even businesses that 
uh, are not part of the restaurant industry. They still eat. Everyone eats, right? And there's enough people in this city who eat where restaurants can be healthy and viable. We have, but we, we must have support from the community. That's paramount. It is really in, in imperative. I can tell you that I have my sous chef that's still on staff. I have um, uh, about three other people that are relatively new that are on staff. I have some staff that just volunteer when they can because we can't pay them right now. Um, but I'm, I'm seeing, and I don't know if the city's going to bounce back come January or February. So I'm not anticipating uh, tourism opening up for Mardi Gras or Sugar Bowl or anything like that. I don't know. So I'm not relying on that. Another thing that I want to say to you is that you, can, you must be uh, prepared to learn from, uh, learn from business experts. First, so you want to um, you want to uh, join associations that can benefit you, like the National Restaurant Association, the Black Restaurant Associations, particularly for me. But um, I, I found that I, you know there are videos online. I read videos. I now produce videos. All the things that I knew in the past was what I need to do to grow this business. It's on steroids for me right now. <laughs> and that's all. And I'm, I'm partially excited because check out my YouTube channel, everyone. You know, if you don't even like it, you know, I remember doing it the very first time I was so stiff. I'm like, okay, you need to do, you know, so you got to put yourself out there and not fear and um, visit other restaurants, sit down with, you know, your, you know, your partners and see how they're doing, what they're doing and how you all can collaborate together. So I look forward. It's like Giddy Boy with the hangover. You know, I visit his page. It's like we that. They have chains of, of chicken wing restaurants all, all over the place. In our market, we have JC Food Doc. They have another location where they're doing wings and stuff and they're growing it. So, you know, technology is wide open and you know, recreating your environment. I, you know, we're a tropical climate here in New Orleans, so we can be outdoors a lot, right? And I'm already an outdoor restaurant. So wear your mask, just mask up, really mask up and come out and space out. And you, that's the key. That's the key right there. You know, um, oh, go ahead, finish what you were going to say. No, no, go ahead. So, I've been struck in the in the conversation as I've been listening to you that you're you're both very savvy about business practices and in the context of the new um, universe dictated in part online, um, but you also seem to have an instinctive intentionality about what you're doing. I need to know where this is coming from. What, what are the roots of who you are that helped shape the business person that you have become? Thank you for that question. I really thank you for that question. Um, <clears throat> I am number eight out of nine children born in 1953. 
My mother was a master seamstress working for Alice, Alice Patel on Magazine Street when I was in the 50s and the 60s. And she, you know, and she hired many young women and taught them how to sew and they got jobs in that factory and she cooked. And my father taught her how to cook. And I never saw myself cooking ever. And, but I saw it and um, I see things that are being created in our in role. Your dad, hmm? your dad taught your mother to cook. My dad taught my mother. My dad taught my mother. Only in the South. And my mother died, my father died when I was nine. And my mother always told me that story of how my dad taught her to cook. How he would go in the kitchen in the morning back then, you know, houses needed repaired. It was a house that he had, but anyway, and he cleared the way in case there was any rodents in the kitchen because there was a hole somewhere, you know, the old ovens and he cleared the way and he did biscuits baking and then he'd get her up and, you know, and she'd see what he's doing. She learned, but, and I learned from my mother via telephone when I had a family, I had never cooked at home and I learned from her. But it's, you know, it's, it's like, it is an art and you have to have passion for it. And my mother had passion for it and it brought families together. And that's what we do in the city. And so you, no matter what home you entered, all of those people knew how to cook. And no one makes a better potato salad than my mother. No one makes a better potato salad than your mother. No, I won't eat your potato salad. Oh no. So yeah, I learned all those things. And that's where it started. And because I want people to be well, my mother, her sisters, they had diabetes. All of my mother's brothers died early ages in their 40s from some form of cancer. And I, I watched her, I watched my mother improve her diet, but she didn't know to tell me, you've got to eat this way. She didn't force, she cooked traditionally, but she started modifying her cooking, her, her, her methods, her techniques and more broiling and less frying. And I observed all of that. And so I got my degree at Tulane at the age of 40. It took me seven years to get that bachelor's from Tulane University. And why? I was a mom in psychology. So that degree has taken me so very far, so very far. And I love this city. I love people and I want us to be well. I want us to be united. And therein lies our mission statement, Meals from the Heart Cafe. We are low sodium, low sugar, uh, heart healthy restaurant, no trans fat, no GMOs. As I sat with my colleagues um, at Tulane University and talked about food and talked about not just the violence that, that physical violence that we do to one another, but the psychological and the mental and that we have to get our bodies under control. We have to exercise. So all of that, um, you know, I, I just think I grew up with a sensibility that people were hurting and suffering as a child. I saw it and I wanted to do something about it. I just didn't know how. I'm not a wealthy person, but I love what I do. And I love the challenge. I love the fact that I'm at I'm 67 years old and I can still 
hang with the young folks in the social media world of the millennials and the G Gen Zs and all of those guys. <laughs> I can teach them a thing or two. <laughs> and I learned so much from them. Yeah, I'm open to learning. You have to be open to learning. Everybody you're listening to me, Master P said that just yesterday as I listened to his Zoom conference on, uh, 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 with uh, Feed the Soul Foundation. And he has got a chain of restaurants that he's opened up fast food in Wait, Harvey. And whoa, 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 slow up. Are you saying Master P has restaurants? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, he's starting, he's incubating, he's in, well, he's incubating a line of food products um, like, like pancake mix and syrups and sauces and all that sort of thing. And he plans on having restaurants where you use his sauces and you can buy all of this stuff. Yeah. He's here. He's in Harvey. That's where it is right now. Wait, he's here in New Orleans? He's in Harvey, Louisiana. When, he, he, when you say he's here, he's here. He's got a restaurant in Harvey, is my understanding, listening to him on Zoom. He's already open in Harvey. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, see, that's competition, but he don't sell a kind of food, that's it. Um, let, let me come back. So um, when, uh, Marilyn, are you open? What days, what hours, and exactly where? Let's get people I'm to at, I'm, We're located at 1100 North Peter Street, and it's in an outdoor, an open air outdoor market. That's the historic farmer's market. And there's a flea market up front at Barracks and North Peter's and French Marketplace. And then if once you enter at Esplanade and Barracks, you come inside the market, you start seeing the food court as you come a little bit at the end of the flea market section. And then you'll see us all along one wall. There's probably what, eight of us, 10, and I'm bay number 13. So we all have our signage, round signs, indicating where our, look, our stall is. You don't have to look at the number, you can just read. The, the hanging signs and we are Meals from the Heart Cafe at bay number 13 and we you have are a phone number? You have a phone mm -hmm. number? We're open Monday, we open seven days a week. Now all the other food vendors and vendors aren't right now. They are allowed um, to, they're allowed shorter hours. You know, we were mandated because it's like Disney World, you're a tourist attraction, so you have to be open seven days a week. But because of COVID, um, my fellow tenants, they, they're not mandated to open Monday through Sunday. So most of them do not open up until Thursday. They're, they're mandated, Thursday. we're mandated Thursday through Sunday. But we never close. So we, you know, we feed people. Well, what, what are your hours per day? Um, our hours are 10 to, our hours are 10 to, four on weekdays and in, in, in 10 to five on weekends now, but Tuesday through Friday, um, our general manager cook comes in and he works from five to 10 on Tuesday through Thursday, just to catch some dinner folks who asked us because now people are going back to work. So it's a test that that's periods of test period with not it's stable 
but it could, you know, it, it could have flexibility. But our normal hours are 10 to 4, for sure, now, seven days a week. How do you order food from you, online or on the phone or both? If you go to our, if you go to my webpage, uh, com, it'll bring you directly to um, our, our homepage. Well, all of the pages, there's a link that says click to order and it will take you to Grubhub. You can also order on Uber Eats, DoorDash. You know, if you go there, you just put in a name, Meals from the Heart Cafe, bam, and you get us. No excuse. We're here. We're easy to contact. And you can call us by phone. Um, our number is 504-525-1953 with a caveat. The French market has old wiring. We're down. Our internet's down right now. We're operating from a cell phone, a hotspot. We got to get a hot, we, we had to use our phone to get a hotspot. So the executives in the administrative staff at the, at the front farmers market, they know about it. We are now, when I hang up with you, I will contact um, uh, this internet service and they are going to get us up and running because AT&T seems to be having difficulty doing that. Um, and uh, this company I understand do not does not require the underground wires that AT&T and Cox Cable and these guys require. What so company is that? It's Skycom One, I believe. Interesting. Very interesting. You yeah. are... So, so that's been a problem. That's yeah. been a problem. But you're, it sounds like you're on the way to solving it. And um, yeah. uh, 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 you are a... Um, a trooper, a uh, model. Um, I'm going to be coming to see you because God knows I love food and I, I can't cook right now. Honestly, I don't cook a lot. Mm -hmm. I have a very short uh, list of really exceptional um, uh, uh, recipes that I've picked up from other people, primarily in the South. I'm not from here originally, but I've been okay. here since early got here in 72 and so I kind of got my um I got my legs I got my New Orleans legs but um I don't cook a lot because I have back issues so okay. I will be a customer of yours well thank you kindly I appreciate it I'm only sorry I didn't hear about you sooner because lately I've had to have my husband cook and he has MS so it's really not fair that he's been oh, having yeah I know I well I mean in, in and, and, um, and please visit uh, Marilyn Doucette's YouTube channel. And um, I'm doing real simple recipes that you may find helpful to you that will not require your back to bend. You know, just really nutritious, healthy things that you can use as a side dish. I can get you through that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'd like you to do that because I, that is the main reason why, well, I'm going to say it's the main reason why I'm doing YouTube. I'm promoting my business, but it's also in line with my mission to, um, uh, provide people with simple ways of getting, uh, healthier, uh, uh food products into their diet, healthy ingredients into their diet, making better choices and getting clean food so that some of the issues that we have with our health can be minimized, right? Yeah, you wanna feel better. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. And also thank you to Stay Local who put me on to you. 
Stay local. Woo woo, Marianne. <laughs> so that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And uh, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it. Sign up if you'd like. Um, Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.